0: would take your Bible and turn to uh, Judges chapter 3 in addition to the mission papers that Jim passed out there was a half sheet uh, for notes about about our Bible study tonight and we'll cover some or all of this depending on how much progress we make and we'll we'll pick up and do the rest uh, next Wednesday night as we continue to go along. I know you have a lot of paperwork in front of you, but you have this, and then uh, on Sundays we have the ministry tables out, so be sure and stop by those tables and find a place to to connect and serve, but tonight what we're doing are the three swords of Judges 3, the three swords of Judges 3. We're going to look at three of the Judges, and I've had to really massage this to get three swords out of it, but it it worked, so okay. Okay. So, starting in verse 7 of Judges 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over and the guy who said his name, that guy, Kushan. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Okay, so in this first section, looking at kind of this first judge that shows up in, in the book with Othniel, connects back purposefully to the figure of Caleb. Uh, the book of Judges and the book of Joshua keep doing this. They're trying to tie together the key figures. So you make the transition from Moses to Joshua, and then Joshua is connected with Caleb. And then we have another connection here that keeps the story going, where you have this guy Othniel, who is Caleb's nephew, but we also know from Judges chapter one that he's Caleb's son-in-law. Perfect world, your nephew is not your son-in-law, uh, but but different time, different place. This is this is how the situation worked out. Back in Judges one. Uh, Othniel was able to gain the right to be Caleb's son-in-law because of an act of courage. Uh, So he already proved himself to be a deliverer. He already proved himself to be somebody of courage. And here he's called upon to be the first deliverer. Now what you get in the first judge that shows up here with Othniel is you get a pattern that goes all throughout the book of Judges. If you can remember the word SWORD and the acronym SWORD, you have the whole book of Judges under command with that one word. Sin, wrath, oppression, repentance, deliverance, repeat. Sin, wrath, oppression, repentance, deliverance. It works out great. You just create the acronym out of the word SWORD. There's a lot of swords that show up in Judges. That's the pattern that drives it over and over again. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. You break the first commandment, good chance you're going to break many others that come after that. Um, and so they break the first commandment, which leads to them breaking many commandments that come after that. So they sin. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. When you're trying to make an acronym work, you change anger to wrath because it works with your, uh, your word. And so scripture talks a lot about the wrath of God. It's not an out-of-control rage, but it's a righteous anger about that sin. Uh, Christianity sort of goes on a pendulum. At times, we focus a lot on God's anger. Then God's really not angry. He loves everybody, and then you realize, ooh, that's not good. And so you go back to this side. God's really angry. Well, he's not angry all the time. He really does love people. And so this pendulum goes back and forth. But God's wrath is a prominent feature in Scripture that, he does not laugh at sin. He does not take sin lightly. So sin is followed by wrath. Verse 9, oh wait, wait, verse, uh, end of verse 8, the people of Israel serve Kishan rishathaim eight years. They're living under oppression. So the wrath of God is followed by a time of living under this oppression, living in slavery. Then, that's followed in verse 9, the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord. So we're going to use R here for repentance. It's hard to determine the level of repentance at this point. Are they crying out just because they're tired of the oppression, or is there really a heart level of repentance? This takes us back to that key verse in 2 Corinthians 7.10 about there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is I'm sorry I got caught, but my heart has not really changed. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to true life. And so we're using repentance, once again, because it fits well with our acronym, but there is this d- reality that I've lived under this oppression, and you reach rock bottom, and you realize, I don't want to live like this anymore. And so you cry out to the Lord. Go back to the story of Exodus, where the people are living under the oppression of slavery, and they're crying out to the Lord, and we know from Scripture that He's a God who hears. Sin leads to wrath, leads to oppression, leads to repentance. D is deliverance. Verse 9, after the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. When God's people cry out to him, he doesn't turn a deaf ear. He raises up one who will rescue them. The story of the Exodus is example number one. Exhibit A is the story of the Exodus. The people cry out under oppression, and he raises up one who will rescue them out. You don't have to read the Jesus Storybook Bible to go from that point to the new testament that god would one day bring the perfect deliverer the one who would deliver us from sin from god's wrath from oppression where true repentance leads to true salvation that you experience through christ and so the story of judges even though it seems far away it seems very strange the core of the book of judges is a gospel message don't miss this the core of the book of judges Sin, wrath, oppression, repentance, deliverance is the gospel message. Um, And and so as you read Judges, you're going to read some funky stories and and crazy things. But don't lose sight of that acronym. That gospel message is meant to guide you throughout the whole book. It's meant to take you through all these different stories. Okay, so with that in mind, look at a really strange story uh, in verse 12. This is another sword all together <laughs> in verse 12, the Ehud sword. Um, the people of Israel, verse 12, the people of Israel again did, w- did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You'll get tired of that phrase in Judges. <laughs> God rescues them again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered, against, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Sin, wrath, oppression. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, repentance, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, deliver, deliverance, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Okay, something really quickly to to notice here. Othniel is the perfect deliverer. Son-in-law of Caleb, nephew of Caleb, man of courage, man of faith. He is the prime deliverer. On purpose, the very next judge is not the prime deliverer. He's left-handed which is a sign of weakness because in that culture, your right hand was your hand of strength. So we already know he's kind of a backward, awkward, weaker guy. Um, And then you're going to find out he's got a lot of other things working against him as well. He's a Benjamite. He's not from the great tribe of Judah like Othniel was. He's from a smaller tribe. This is not the guy that you would pick to be your deliverer, but it's the guy that God picks to be the deliverer. Verse 16 ehud made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes verse 16 is your sign that not only is he left-handed not only is he from an insignificant tribe but he's a trickster he's he's shrewd in the way he deals with things he's going to hide a lot of different things in this story and he starts by hiding his sword uh concealing carry has been around for a long time apparently but uh Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, which doesn't sound like a funny phrase until you read the second half of 17 that Eglon was a very fat man. Um, he's mocking him. This guy is already completely overweight, and he's bringing a tribute. And by a tribute, it's this, it's this food offering. Uh, <laughs> and so he's like, hey, you're already uh, bigger than you should be, and here I'm going to bring you more food uh it, it's a sign of just in his face mockery now remember uh many cultures and, and to a degree still in the south but you don't see it quite as much anymore for much of human history being a little bigger was a sign of prosperity it was a sign of class it was a sign that you were you're of well means and so we take this as a negative thing and and, and he is you're going to find out extremely large but it's being played up the fact that this is a very prosperous guy. And he's gotten wealthy. He's gotten fat off the backs of the Israelites. That's what we're supposed to see here. He's, he's prosperous. He's fat. But he's fattened himself at other people's expense. And so it's going to come back on him here, here in a second. Um, verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself... Turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Okay, make sure you don't miss what's happening in the story. They're going home. He gets about halfway home and he sends the rest of his people home. And then he turns around and goes back to talk to the king. So he wants to keep what he's going to do secret from his own troops. He sends his troops home and he goes back with a secret message. Again, trickster undercover. So the king commanded silence into verse 19 and all his attendants went out from his presence and ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and ehud said i have a message from god for you and he arose from his seat and he had reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly And then the end of verse 22, the done came out. Uh, It stunk uh, at that point. So once again, the book of Judges is full of 8th grade boys Sunday school uh, stories. Like you just cannot go wrong uh, with the book of Judges here. So don't miss the irony here. Sword is hidden. Secret message. Insert sword. Sword is hidden again. The whole story is meant to give off this idea of complete hiddenness, complete happening uh, below the surface, behind the scenes. The this, this secret message is here. And the result is it stinks uh, at the end of verse 22. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Again, he's hidden the king from his own people. Everything this guy does is about trickery and hiding from other people. And he's the deliverer that <laughs> God has called to, to this role verse 24 when he had gone the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the chamber were locked they thought surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber and they waited till they were embarrassed all right um end of verse 22 the dung came out they think he's just taking a long time in there it, it is what you think it is. Like, they're embarrassed because of what they're perceiving coming out of the room. They're, they're sensing the smell, and he's been in there for a long time, and they're, 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 do we go in and check on him? Do we just wait, you know? <laughs> we'll just go on. Uh, I was thinking of a couple of possible jokes, but none of them were, were appropriate for the internet, so, uh, or for any context for that matter. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. It gets lost in the translation, but able-bodied there is actually the same word for fat that was used earlier to describe Ehud. So it seems like even his soldiers uh, had prospered. They were a little bigger. It doesn't mean that they were buffed. It probably just means that they were fat like their king was. Again, They had gotten fat off the backs of the Israelites and now they're so fat they can't run away from them and they're going to be captured and killed. God is delivering his people against those that seem more prosperous. Um, Not a man escaped. Verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. God gives his people victory even over worldly power. You have to be careful here. You have to be careful. But you can almost take this story and transfer it in many ways to the book of Revelation and and kind of the whole story of the New Testament where you have this Roman Empire that is powerful, that's gluttonous, that's getting fat off the backs of all of these slaves, all these people, including the Christians. And yet God is going to raise up a people who will be able to defeat this great empire. God's people, even when, they're un, even when they're smaller, even when they don't have as much to bring the table, are able to overcome people who are more prosperous, people who are stronger, because God gives them the strength to do that. And the key is, we'll talk about more this next week, God doesn't always use the people that we would expect him to use. We want him to use Othniel every time, and then he turns around and uses a guy like Ehud which leads to the last verse of the chapter, and we'll wrap up with this. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Shamgar we even know less about than Ehud, but what we do know about Shamgar is he doesn't even have a sword. He just has a prod for animals, uh, an ox goad, something that you would poke the ox with to say, keep moving, don't stop. He has a farming tool. Ehud at least had a sword. A little bit of a lesson here. All you can do is use the gifts that God has given you. Shamgar was not held responsible because he didn't have a sword. He had an ox goad And he used what he was given, and God used that for the salvation of his people. Uh, Sometimes we're tempted to think, and we've talked about this with 1 Corinthians, if I had that person's gifting, if I had that person's talent, if I had that person's personal history and background, if I had that person's money, if I go on and on and on, if I had that person's, man, then I would really be able to make an impact for the kingdom. And we realize what dangerous thinking that is, that God may have given you an ox goat and said, I want you to use this, because when you use this and people are saved, it's going to be obvious that it's me who gets the glory. Speaking of God, God gets the glory for that. Um, I just want us at Emmaus, and, and mainly I'm just talking about myself especially here, We just get so caught up of if I had that or if I was there, if I was that person, then God would really use me. No. God desires to use you. And he loves to use the people that would be most looked over by the world, most discarded, less likely to be used by the Lord. Othniel sets the stage. He's the perfect deliverer. He lays the foundation for judges. Here comes Ehud, (laughs) trickster. Not to be expected, God uses him. Here comes Shamgar, we know almost nothing about him. He doesn't even have a sword, he has an ox goad. God uses him. God wants to use you, God wants to use me, God wants to use Emmaus, all through the power of Christ to see people saved. Um, and so I hope you're encouraged by that. And we got past the Ehud story, so, so that's a good thing as well. All right, let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up tonight. to thank you for the stories we heard earlier about the the work in Calgary I know the thing that always stands out to me is I think about last summer going there and anytime you go on a mission trip is having to ask myself why would I live so intentionally on a trip like that and then not live the same way uh, when, when we come back home so to speak and so God help us to live intentionally Help us not to waste the days that you've given us. Help us not to waste the gifts and the ox goads that you've given us. We may not have the sword that someone else has, but you have gifted us. You've given us talents. You've given us stories. You've given us experiences. And God, we want to use every one of those. Um, And so instead of looking at another person or another church, God, let's just be faithful with what you've called us to do. Thank you for these stories and judges of of the way you use different types of people, the way you you deliver your people in many different ways, and and ultimately how all these stories point us to Christ as the perfect deliverer, the one who sets us free from sin, and the one who we proclaim as, as Lord and Messiah. Father, we thank you for those that serve in our preschool and kids area and students. God, thank you for what they've taught and the investment they've made tonight. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.